Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Andrew Kennison. Uh, he is the winner of the CSPI essay contest, Policy Reform for Progress. Uh, his essay is called Gathering Steam, Unlocking Geothermal Potential in the United States. And he's here to talk about it today. Andrew, how are you doing? Good. Good to be here. Glad to have you. So um, tell us just a little bit about your background. You know, where do you come from? Um, what do you do? Um, you know, how did you get interested in uh, energy policy? Just the basics. Yeah, sure. I uh, So I um, grew up in Tennessee. Um, I went to a small school in North Carolina. I started working in local journalism after that. Um, worked for about two years at a newspaper in Georgia. Then I moved to uh, Kodiak, Alaska, where I live now. Worked the worked the newspaper here for a little bit. And then um, now I work at the local housing authority on some federal rental assistance programs. Um, got interested in energy policy just because, uh, I mean, climate change is like a huge deal um, in the world, especially for people like like me who are young and plan on living for a little bit. And, uh, you know, so I've been always been kind of interested in that kind of thing. Um, and energy policy is a huge part of that. Um, and I think geothermal is maybe an underrated component of of that mix and so that was uh kind of started my interest in that that, that direction yeah you're you're a uh, former journalist right where, Correct, did, where yes. did you write about say again what did you write about i was uh i mean i worked in small newspaper so i was kind of just writing about whatever was relevant to my coverage area so at one point that was a county in uh sort of outside atlanta georgia so it could have been anything from city council meetings to uh you know Profiles of local people, crime, courts, uh, economic development, um, did some sports, did all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's kind of the same thing here, just sort of anything that was relevant to Kodiak, right? You know, where I live now. Yeah. What brought you out to Alaska? That's a pretty far, that's far away. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, my girlfriend just kind of always thought of, you know, we, we like to, we have like the outdoors and always kind of thought about moving out here. And uh, I just, I was trolling the job boards at one point. And, saw the job at the newspaper here and just sort of went for it, convinced them to hire me. And we've been here about two years. So you started, you started out as a reporter in Alaska and then you found the, uh, the job with the public housing authority. Correct. Yeah, that's right. How, and how did you make that transition to, uh, from reporter to, uh, uh public housing um, authority government? Employee? I, uh, I knew the director of the, uh, the housing authority here, um, just because I'd written about, about housing here and she's been someone, she's someone really knowledgeable about that in the area. And um, they had an opening uh, because they got some uh, money for federal rental assistance that came out of the COVID rental COVID relief bills, the past Congress. And um, it's a small community. I mean, we're on an Island. And so you, you kind of have to recruit people who are already here. And so she, uh, she, she thought I'd be a good fit for that. Um, Cause I'm pretty, what, what's, the, what's the Island called? Kodiak. So it was like, it's like an island off like the south, sort of like in the Gulf of Alaska. So I mean, picture Alaska, it's like uh, in the southern kind of southwest-ish area. Just this uh, like, pulling... oh, wow, you are, you are out there. It's out there. We're off the road. We're off the road system. You can only get here by plane or ferry. Um, population about 13,000 in the town and then surrounding areas. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's interesting. It's like, I mean, I, I, I think it's actually an interesting case, like kind of interesting. Like I don't think I would have gotten a job with this kind of responsibility with like my lack of experience doing anything related to housing somewhere else. Um, but here, you know, if you can just get someone who will, who is smart and just will try hard, 
That's something you can get a lot of jobs here. How many people live on Kodiak Island? Uh, thirteen thousand ish, kind of give or take. Kind of goes up, goes up in the summertime because fishing's big here, and um, so some people come in to fish and stuff. But right around. Really, you guys really sought out the the remote location. You guys have kids? We do not have kids. That might be that might be a sounds like a great actually a great place to to raise kids. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's on the day, uh, um, the schools are better than you would think they would be for already right to, you know, they're pretty well run. And oh, I, I, I would suspect they're, I would suspect they're, <laughs> I would suspect they're fine. I think it's like select quite a selected bunch that, go, that goes out yeah. there. So like kids can kind of okay. run around here. You just gotta kind of watch out for the bears. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is, that is cool. Okay. Well, that's sort of a, that's sort of a cool background. Uh, so, uh, geothermal energy, I mean, you know, assume, you know, I knew pretty much nothing about it before reading your essay. I still know pretty much nothing about it except for what I read in your essay. So, uh, just, just describe sort of what the geothermal energy is and just how it works. Yeah. I mean, it's not super complicated. I mean, basically the inside of the earth is really hot, right? I mean, the the very, very core of the earth is 6,000 degrees, which is the temperature of the surface of the sun. So there's lots of heat inside the earth. And at various points, that heat can leak out towards the surface. And so for many years, um, you know, in certain places, there's heat that just kind of comes out of the surface of the earth. And um, places that are near those areas um, are able to capture some of that heat, that steam to drive turbines to create power or capture that and heat buildings. Um, so what's interesting about geothermal right now is for a long time, there was sort of um, only one way to kind of do it, which was that you had to be in a certain location near a fault line or a volcano or like lava um, would kind of creep towards the surface of the earth and create that heat at shallow enough depths that you could access it. Okay, so a place like Iceland is the classic example. On a fault line, um, lots of hot springs, lots of volcanoes. They run most of their energy on geothermal energy. What's interesting now is that there's new technologies kind of available that allow companies um, to drill deeper and access that heat in areas that are not quite so close to surface. Um, and so uh, theoretically, you know, if you could, you could access geothermal energy anywhere on Earth if you drill deep enough. Um, the interesting thing that's happening right now is companies are figuring out ways, ways to drill deeper and create geothermal energy in places that you couldn't do it 20, 30 years ago. Um, so it's kind of an interesting spot, right? It's kind of an interesting spot right now. So what, I mean, what's, what determines is how close you are to the, to some kind of fault line. What else? I mean, is it, it's, is it like, uh, is it like you're, you're below sea level more, you're closer to the earth at that, at that level, it doesn't matter that much. Is it, I'm not is sure it, it matters that much. I think it's more important that you're near a fault line where, where there's magma creeping up through this kind of through the crust. Um, that's the crucial thing. So, I mean, actually here in Alaska, there are. In, outside Fairbanks, there's, um, which is a, in the town of the interior, there's a, a little town that runs almost all in geothermal energy. Um, and there's also, there's plenty of, there's lots of volcanoes here. So there's lots of potential for the more traditional, with the, I call it traditional geothermal in my, in my essay, but what they actually would call it would be hydrothermal is probably the, the better term. Um, and that's like, that's um, when, you know, the, the lava is already close to the surface and it's heat is actually heating water that's like trickled down there for some reason and like that's pushing the steam up and you put a plant on top of that and that drives a turbine which makes energy uh, 
So that's kind of the basics as far as, far as I can know. I mean, I'm, I'm far from an expert, but I've, I have done a fair amount of reading about this. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And so you're saying it's becoming more feasible to use geothermal. Are, are, are there countries or regions that are um, capitalizing on, on this kind of energy? Yeah. So, I mean, like, like I said, Iceland is, is the classic example with hydrothermal energy. Kenya is another one that has really gotten on board with this and they have a lot of energy coming from um, geothermal. But actually the country with the most installed, I think, gigawatts of energy is the United States. So California and Nevada in particular have um, a number of geothermal plants kind of based around fault lines there and based around uh, sort of more, more traditional geothermal, hydro, hydrothermal energy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely around. It's just like it can only be in a certain specific number of places right now. Yeah. That's interesting. So, what is the so what what's the what's the sort of what's your policy idea to uh, help uh, make use of this technology? Sure. Yeah. So, like I said, um, there's there's lots of new technologies developing around geothermal that could put it in more places, um, which would be good for all kinds of reasons. You know, just more energy, energy. You know, and it's carbon free energy. Um, so that's would be so more geothermal. I think most people would agree would be a really good thing. Um, the policy I'm proposing is to exempt um, geothermal exploration from filing environmental assessments under the Natural Environmental Protection Act um, called NEPA. So I guess I'll unpack that a little bit. So if you so first of all, the first thing to know is that like a lot of geothermal places with geothermal potential are in the western part of the United States, where the federal government owns a lot of land. Okay. So a lot of places you'd want to look for geothermal energy would be in the West and on federal land. Right now, if you want to just go look, not, not necessarily build a big power plant, but just look, just like drill a hole in the ground and see, is there enough heat here to potentially sustain a power plant here? You have to file this very, very lengthy uh, environmental assessment just to go explore on federal land. Okay. And so that is slowing down um the how development far down do you need to go how far do you need to go to have any idea whether it makes that's sense? good you know i don't i don't really know um it's a good question it really really varies on on where it is and i, I i'm not super well versed in like the technical aspects of like you got to go this far down to like find this amount of heat because it kind of varies where it's at but like you do need to do a fair amount of exploration to find something that's worth investing in. um so uh the thing I'm proposing is to basically exempt exploration from um, um, filing, exempt them from exempt exp geothermal exploration from filing these environmental assessments. So that way, it would free up the industry to do more prospecting, looking for places, do more experimentation, iterate, get better technologies without being slowed down so much um, by. Uh, by paperwork, basically. Um, one thing, I, I, there was a study by the National um, Renewable Energy Laboratory that found that, like, it could, you could, you could, uh, if you do exempt this kind of exploration, um, which they would, uh, you could reduce permitting time from 337 days to 88 days. So it's a lot faster. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, so do you think it would allow more freedom to sort of explore geothermal resources and stuff? Um, the kicker in all this. And what makes it really, really galling is that the oil and gas industry already has this. 
So if you're if you want to go drill for oil or gas anywhere on federal lands, you don't have to file an environmental assessment. You can just do it. And that's been the case since 2005. And so really, what uh, you know, what I'd be calling for, and what others have called for, is just to put geothermal energy, which you know is carbon free and better for the future, on the same terms as oil and gas, which seems like it would be a no brainer. But it hasn't happened yet, so I don't know. It seems like it would be a, a no-brainer. So, is there? I mean, is there a justification that people give for? For first of all, for uh, the uh, well, the NEPA doesn't even require you to um, do anything except have a report, right? It's not like a, you know, it's not like a cost-benefit thing. It's just like a, have a report. But well, is there any reason to treat like that's given even like an argument made for why oil and gas should be different from geo- geothermal? I don't. Not that I know. <laughs> Um, and you're doing, you're doing very similar things. Um, there is a, there's a small risk for geothermal, um, that can, it can cause tectonic shifting if you drill down deep enough. But I think when you're just exploring, I don't know this for sure. I don't think that's really a risk. So I, I, I think it's, I really think it's just, um, just inertia. It's just always been this way. And, uh, I mean, the oil and gas lobby figured out a way to get it through in 2005, and I don't think the geothermal lobby, it doesn't exist or it, it does, it's not as powerful, does not have the influence to get that kind of form, unfortunately. How, have there been any um, studies or uh, any research done on potentially how much of a benefit this can be if you allowed, you know, uh, unlimited exploration of geothermal? What could, you know, what could potentially could it provide, you know, a third of American energy, a tenth, you know, well, 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 has anyone thought like, you know, in terms of what actual impact might, might be? Yeah. Um, let me see. So, I mean, first of all, there was a, there's another, another analysis from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory that I cited in my essay that basically says that like doing this would increase the amount of discovered geothermal energy by one to 3% a year. So it's not like, you wouldn't, it would, I mean, that, and that could be over the course of 10 years. I mean, that could be a lot, you know? Um, I think geothermal is kind of, uh, it's, it's the renewable, I mean, we think about renewable energy things. Um, I think it's the one that's that has the highest variability kind of in like outcomes in the future. I think that makes sense. Like we're going to build a lot of solar panels. We're going to build a lot of wind turbines. We'll hopefully build a lot of nuclear plants. Um, geothermal could still, could May kind of be what it is today, kind of bit part player, or it could be really, really big. Um, I mean, like I said, you could th- theoretically do it anywhere. Um, and it's doesn't have the intermittency problems that wind and solar do, you know, with which that means the sun's always shining, the wind's not always blowing, but the earth is always hot. Um, so I think if you can get some of these technologies to mature, um, I think it could be a really big part of the sort of renewable energy mix in the future, um, especially because it can act as sort of a backstop when like the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. So I don't know exactly. I mean, the end analysis suggests that you could, this is, you know, it would, you know, incrementally increase the, uh, the amount of geothermal energy, which would be good. Um, but, you know, hard to know exactly um, how, just by how much this would, this could increase the amount of geothermal energy discovered and put to use. So yeah, just looking up some data. So it uh, looks like the German geothermal energy right now, they say is 0.4% of all American energy, but that varies a lot by state. So Nevada, it's 9%. Uh, in California, it's uh, 5.8%. Uh, Oregon, 2.2%. And then 
you know, lesson uh, everywhere else. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. It, it, how is the, um, how is it on cost? Once the startup, once you've built the plant, I mean, keeping it running and functioning, how does it compare it to other forms of energy? I think it's, I think it's pretty comparable. Um, I think, um, it, and it really, and like a lot of renewable energies, um, most of the, how much it costs is going to depend on how much it costs to build, not so much how much it costs to maintain. Right. So like a natural gas plant really is really dependent on like the cost of natural gas for how expensive the energy is. But geothermal, same with similar as like wind and solar, most of the costs are up front. So really, so, um, I, 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 so if you could, so the, the more affordably you can build a plant, you know, the less it'll cost in the long run. And there won't be a whole lot of other costs down the road. Um, I, I don't know off the top of my head how much it would cost to build a geothermal energy plant but i've i've read that like once if you could do if you do it um well it can be it is, it is comparable to um to natural gas uh, or something like that so but I'm, I'm not i'm not positive yeah sure so the the uh so it's it looks like congress has can you talk a little bit about the congressional history? Because it seems like you're not the first person who ever thought this up. It seems like it's been an issue in Congress. Um, you know, what, what's you just give us a little bit of the, sort of the legislative history and the attempts here to try to to try to move policy in this direction. Yeah, sure, absolutely. This is, this is absolutely not my idea. This is absolutely something that's been been talked about. Um, so, as far as I could tell, um, 2011 was the first time this came up. Um, two senators from uh, um, one from Utah, one from Idaho, introduced um, something that, that would provide uh, this exemption from from NEPA for geothermal, but it it, it died in in committee. There made it, you know, where a lot of bills die, um, a lot of good ideas die there. Um, another interesting attempt is that in the end of 2020, um, Congress passed this big um, energy bill that did a lot of different things, but you know, um, it was as far as I could tell, it was. In this was included in a certain, a li- more limited version. It was included in an earlier part of the bill, but then when it got wrapped into sort of like the year-end omnibus spending thing, it got cut out. And I would love to know why that happened. I could not figure out why that happened. Um, fortunately, there is a new attempt uh, to do this. Uh, um, uh, Congressman uh, Russ Fulcher and uh, Mike Risch, who are both uh, Idaho. Um, congressmen have introduced um, a bill that would do it, introduced it in September of last year that would do this basically exempt um, geothermal energy, uh, sort of like the exempts oil and gas from this NEPA requirements. Um, but I, I check it, I've checked it a few times and it doesn't seem like it's really gone anywhere. Um, my, my hope would be that um, if something like Build Back Better or whatever it ends up being called gets passed that gets pushed into it because it would just make a whole lot of sense to, um, you know, if you're going to give out all this money to build real energy, to like make it a little bit more efficient to build renewable energy, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So NEPA, I mean, everything has to do NEPA. So the wind, solar, I mean, basically anything, anything, basically any major infrastructure project that the government does, or it's not the government. NEPA is, who wait? T- tell me exactly who has to fill out a NEPA. It's anyone who's doing anything large. I mean, it can, be, it can be government. It can be private. I mean, it's it's pretty far ranging. If you're going to do something on um, federal lands or could affect federal lands, um, you've got to fill out um, 
your NEPA stuff. Okay. So, so it's a federal, uh, it's, it's a federal end. It, if I would just want to buy, if I just want to build a house in the, somewhere in non-federal, uh, did, is there a NEPA or is it about size? Or I what? don't think so. I think it's just, I think it's just, I think it's protects federal lands. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, the federal lands, by the way, is not um, it's not like small. Like people think federal lands, oh, there might be like a you know a little park or something. I mean, look at a map sometime of federal lands out west, and it's like the entire state of Nevada, <laughs> like the entire state of New Mexico, and a lot of California and you know Colorado and Wyoming. So yeah, uh, yeah, federal lands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the government just at some point just you know shut off you know the west side you know they just decided that the west side of the you know the west uh, the western part of the country would you know not be developed to any great extent. I mean, it's it's an amazing actually it's an amazing thing that you know this is sort of how it worked when you know the the eastern half of the country you know just was you know allowed to develop sort of in private hands. It's it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. No, I mean you're right. There's I mean you got. There's, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's national parks, which are the biggest things when people think of when they think of federal lands, you know, Yellowstone or Yosemite. But there's also, you know, there's, there's so much more than that. You know, there's national forests, there's, na- there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of like six or seven different um, sort of designations for like what you might call federal land. Uh, yeah so, are they yeah. are they all like are they all like nature preserves are they all pe- places where people can go hang out or is it just some empty land sitting there doing to nothing? some extent yeah i mean there they are i mean part of the purpose is conservation so yeah i mean you know here in alaska you know for instance like right where, where i live in kodiak two-thirds of the island is a national wildlife refuge um so there's lots of wildlife here particularly kodiak brown bears and so um uh, it was created to protect that species which is unique to here. There's giant bear, giant bears that live here, um, and the salmon that feed them. Um, and then there's certain rules first on like whether what you can do in a refuge. You know, you can fish if you have a permit. You can you can hunt if you have a permit. But it's like some places, like national parks, you know, you can't do any of that stuff. You know, and then like a national forest, like you can like run cattle, but you can't. I don't know. You know, it, there's all kinds of <laughs> very complicated uh, designations for like what you can and can't do on federal lands depending on what they are yeah so is so the i mean the the policy i mean the policy thing is interesting because you said you know what do you have a you have any any kind of gut feeling like it sounds like who who would be against this maybe environmentalists maybe oil companies can you tell anything by the partisan sort of composition of who's opposing it because that would yeah, be different that's a really good question i i think my gut feeling is yeah i don't know exactly my gut feeling would be that like sort of old school environmentalists who sort of see environmentalism as like preservation, um, sort of like pre-climate change environmentalists who fought for, you know, the national park system and stuff like that, and fought for conservation, who see, envi- who see environmentalism as like protecting um, nature from industry. Um, so I, 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 would, I think that, that would, that's probably um, the, biggest, the, the biggest thing. I think oil and gas might have some opposition to this, but probably less than you might expect because the skills are pretty transferable. I mean, the oil and gas companies say what you will about them. They're really good at drilling holes in the ground, you know, and to build, to do geothermal, you know, you drill holes in the ground. So there's, I think that, I mean, a lot of oil and gas companies probably should be looking at shifting some personnel and resources to doing this kind of thing. Um, they certainly have the money and the technology that they, that could do this. I think some of them are, but I think probably the biggest, um, yeah, like I said, I think probably the, the biggest contingent would be, yeah, sort of old school environmentalists who don't want to see, you know, trucks and heavy industry on 
you know, federal lands, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we're, you know, we're very, me, you probably, and people, uh, a lot of people listen to this, I think are more like online people. So like, you know, to us, NEPA is sort of this, you know, this, uh, just big wasteful thing that stops, uh, you know, industry and progress. And then like, but I think, you know, I suspect that in like Congress and activist groups, it's, they're having, they have a completely different outlook, uh, on these things and it make it makes sense to why there would be uh resistance to this in in washington yeah i'm, I'm not i don't think i'm too surprised by that and there's no of course there's no i assume there's no movement to uh uh revoke the oil and gas uh exception is there no no and yeah i mentioned it in the essay but it's, it's been really beneficial to them um and you know got a guy eli dorado who's been talking about these things all these things a lot and kind of um, he inspired some of the things I was writing about. He he wrote about how that that uh, that exemption helped them sort of develop a technology that created what we call the shale, the shale revolution, which was basically the ability for them to like drill into rock formations they didn't think they could they they could, and withdraw a lot of natural gas and oil that that, that thought was previously, previously inaccessible. So there is kind of precedent for this kind of exemption causing. Um, technological development in um a field it was just oil and gas you know but that was good for a lot of people uh, definitely drove energy prices down yeah and is there anyone i mean anyone doing anything exciting uh internationally i don't know if you saw the chi- what the chinese are doing with some you know they're building some uh absurdly high number of nuclear power plants apparently in the next uh decade or so um is anyone anyone doing any kind of crash program on geothermal or or trying to you know advance geothermal in any meaningful way that's a good question i mean i mentioned iceland and kenya those are probably the two nations that i can as far as i can tell that are that have the highest percentage of geothermal in their energy mix um other like places like indonesia and the philippines are looking into it too because they're also on fault lines that you know where you could you, you could get this stuff going um japan has has a geothermal program uh, i think russia has some stuff going on so like i mean it's it's again like the technology isn't isn't a new technology it's just the fact that like now you could potentially develop it into be so that you know i i, I don't you know ohio could have geothermal energy in, one day in the future which is nowhere near a fault line um, that would be the exciting thing Okay, cool. So is there, a, are you hoping, I mean, are you going to, um, I mean, do you plan on working in energy, advocating for this or, you know, doing anything to move the, uh, move the geothermal cause forward? That's a good question. Um, I've thought about it. I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a, we're moving in, uh, in July and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do next career wise. Um, I'm really interested in housing and stuff, but potentially, um, think about going to law school. Um, but also, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it could, um, uh, work in policy for, you know, energy, energy company or something like that, or, um, do communication, something like that. I don't know. We, yeah. I think it'd be cool to be kind of involved in, um, stuff that's kind of on the cutting edge, pushing things forward. It'd be, that'd be, it'd be kind of fun. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you'd be good at that. I mean, being interested enough to know as much as you do without having a direct, uh, uh, sort of, a uh, work, you know, work interested in knowing this stuff, you know, it's, it's something rare. So I, you know, I think that if you did go into policy or something like that, uh, I think, you know, you'd, you'd have the inclination to do pretty well in it. So yeah, I, I, I hope you, I hope you do do that. Okay, cool. So is there, uh, anything you want to say, Andrew, is there any uh, people follow you on Twitter? Do you have a newsletter? Do you have a TV show? Anything, anything you can mention? I, before I'm, you I'm not, I mean, I'm, 
I'm online. I read a lot online. I'm not, I don't really participate much. I don't really, I'm not really on Twitter or Facebook or really anything. I guess like a few things. I mean, I could shout out things that help that helped me here. I mean, you could, if you want, if you're interested more in geothermal energy, definitely check out Eli Dorado. Um, he's been talking about this for a while. Um, there's a company called or a nonprofit just formed called Project Interspace, which they're trying to map out geothermal resources globally, then also fund early stage companies um, that would work in that space. So they're actually a nonprofit, um, but they uh, they're a cool group. And then if you just Google geothermal future. There's a cool website that can uh, that kind of explains the basics probably better than I could um, with graphics and stuff that kind of explain how where we're at with geothermal energy and um, you know where it could go. Okay, sounds good. All right, well, thanks thanks for being here, Andrew. It was great absolutely. great having yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Today with uh, Max Tabarok. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So you have a name that's gonna last name that's gonna be familiar to many people. Uh, can you tell us about your background and uh, where you come from and what you do and all that? Sure. So uh, right now I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Virginia, studying economics and math. Um, yep. So my dad is also a professor of economics. So I've grown up in and around the GMU. Econ department, Alex Tabarrok, Tyler Cowan, Brian Kaplan. These are the people, my biggest uh, role models and intellectual influences. So that's always been a lot of fun talking to them and hanging out with them. Yeah, mine too. That's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, you're lucky. You're lucky. I think a lot of people are going to listen to this and think you have a, you have a great background and you don't yeah. have to get a lot of experience. And Definitely. yeah, it makes sense. You're going to be, uh, you're studying to be a, you want to be an economist, right? I think so. That's what I'm studying now. I love to write and research things. And I think uh, economics is in a good position where you could basically study anything you want uh, as an economist. They, they have some hegemony over many uh, academic fields. So I like that about economics. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, most other fields, if you, you can't go far off into left field. Like in political science, if you want, you know, you could study any, you could study anything. You could study personal relationships and economics. Uh, you can branch into politics, uh, business. Yeah, basically covers everywhere where humans make decisions about something. Um, economics has a role to play, while in other fields, yeah, not not as much. I, you know, I like that. I think we have we're over specialized in academia and intellectual life. And if there's a field that's not over specialized, I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, so your uh, essay was called "No Money, No Problems." It's about uh, science funding. It was uh, achieved second place in the CSPI essay contest. Can you just tell us about the uh, uh, the essay? What what's the problem that you see, and how are you trying to solve it? Yeah. So the basic thrust of the essay is so it starts out accepting the common sense about how you know, science and technology, basic research have big positive externalities. And people say, well, because of this, we should have some government subsidy or some government-led production of these things. And I think that's fair. The logic makes sense. But when you actually go and look at the way science is funded, it turns out to be extremely inefficient. And there are this, there are these, this long list of of turbulent second order effects, which dissipate the positive effect of government transfers. 
And we have this big, you know, bottom line number of like $120 billion a year that the government uh, spends funding research and development. But it seems like lately we aren't getting much for our money. So that was the idea of the essay to figure out, well, what is the problem here and how can we solve it best? Yeah. And what's your, what's your reasoning? What's your evidence that we're not getting uh, all that we could out of that money? So one uh, highlight uh, point that I make in the essay is that half of all research papers, half of all scientific papers that have ever been published have been published in the last 12 years. Yeah. But if we look around us, there's no way that half of all scientific progress has been made in the last 12 years. It's probably not even 10%, even though it is accelerating. So that alone tells you that there's been a big uh, sort of devaluation. Like the average scientific paper is now making much less progress than it used to in the past. So uh-huh. there's definitely something going on there. Okay. Yeah, we hear we hear your dog in the background, but I think I think that's that's okay. That that, that adds adds some realism to the to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sorry about that. He's he's, he's walking around here. He's no, no, for, let, let, for scraps. Let, let him let him roam for, let him roam free. That's, <laughs> that's fine. So when you say half of all uh uh so half of all science has been produced in the last 12 years. Is that does that include a social science how, how are they measuring these papers? Um, yeah, so it's just an index of papers published. I'm not sure what uh, journals they include, yeah. so I'm not no, sure should, if, should, if social should, science is included there. It shouldn't should matter. I mean, if, you know, I don't think we're making enough gains to justify it uh, in either social sciences or 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 the or the hard sciences. So, I mean, this is a is this a pure problem of is this a pure problem of there's not that many people who can actually do good science. And that like the more we fund, the more, you know, there's more diminishing returns. And aren't we creating sort of incentives for this, uh, for this sort of citation, you know, peer reviewed game uh, where people are wasting their time? Is is that what your sense of what's going on here? Um, I think in some sense, that's right. So I do definitely think that the way the funding is distributed through these competitive grants does lead scientists to uh, kind of converge their ideas and support the prevailing paradigms rather than trying to make big discoveries. Although I'm not sure it's really uh, about, well, there's just a fixed supply of people who can be great scientists and we exhaust it quickly and then the extra funding just goes to not very productive people. Because, uh, you know, over the past several decades, the world's population has, of course, grown a lot. So even if there's a fixed fraction of good scientists, we'd expect there to be much better science uh, by that. And I think that, you know, decreasing global poverty has also probably created many more uh, capable scientists. Yeah. So the American system of uh, so the American system of uh, uh, distribution for funding for science, how, how does it work and how would you fix it? Yeah, so. Most of the money, uh, so uh, of the 120 billion yearly that uh, is put towards research and development, about half of it goes to the Department of Defense, and most of the other half goes to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. With a little bit here and there, is like the Department of Agriculture has some, but across all of these different uh, federal departments which are distributing money. Almost all of them distribute it 
through this competitive grant system. So they put out a call, they want papers on this or proposals for this, and then they accept applications for some number of months. They take a long time to go and review them. They make people go through many steps of revision, and then they approve, you know, want one or two teams to continue with the project. Yeah. And if, and if you, as a scientist, filled out a grant application and you don't uh, get it, uh, that's that's time you flush down the toilet. I mean, I don't know. People, some people might have filled out grant applications before. Some people haven't. It's not an easy system. It's not like going to Amazon and ordering, you know, a, a showerhead. I mean, it's like you know, you have to you have to know about you have to know about it. You have to put together things in like an exact way. You have to write out the proposal. You have to say you have to different sections that you have to f- uh, fill up. You know, you have to uh, you know you have to uh, uh, you know there's questions about you know ethical stuff and what you're gonna do with the research. So it's just tons and tons of time. And you know, what's the evidence? To, so what's what's the, what's your system instead of uh, competitive grant proposal? What could be better? Um, yeah, so first of all, I totally uh, agree with you that these grants are very costly. So my, my mom is a microbiologist, and she spends maybe 40% of her time at work just filling out these applications rather than like actually doing uh, lab work and pushing knowledge forward. Um, so there are a couple different ways uh, around this problem. One, perhaps the, the simplest, uh, would be to change these competitive grants to a lottery system. So you just pick some pool of applicants and disperse the grants randomly. And this takes away the incentive to invest a lot of resources into competing for these grants. And that can kind of save us from the anticipation. But, you know, there are some obvious problems with just distributing it via lottery. You don't really get uh, maybe the best targeted money. Um, So one thing that I propose in the essay is something called researcher guided funding. And the basic idea here is just to take, you know, a pretty big population of researchers at STEM universities. And I basically calculate that this, this is about 250,000 people and just straight up distribute the 120 billion uh, yearly dollars to each one of these researchers and say, okay, 60% of this money that you get, each one of them would get about $500,000 a year. 60% of the money you can put towards any research project you like. The other 40% you have to use to fund your peers. And I think this is an interesting system because it can kind of take advantage of the distributed kind of man on the spot knowledge where each of the individual researchers has lots of knowledge about what their colleagues are doing, who has the highest potential, what are the best, most promising projects, and they can quickly put out the funds. Like an inspiration for this is Tyler Cowen's Fast Grants and Emergent Ventures. Like this guy just knows a lot of people and he has a good nose for which projects are going to be good, which ones have high potential. So if he got some money, which he does, and, um, he can distribute it quickly using his knowledge. It's much easier than trying to like centralize that knowledge into a federal organization. 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't um, people uh, just sort of give it to their buddies? So if you're, you know, if you you have a, if there's like some great project that would require a lot of people sending their, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, everyone's just going to have, you know, a little stake in that. There's no incentive to really, you know, be, you know, be a part of that. Well, you know, I think what people might do is just give it to their, you know, friends down the line or do it on, well, you know, political basis or do things that make them look good. Um, they'd want to, I think, I think they, there wouldn't be a, I think there wouldn't be a um, a trend to sort of aggregate into big projects that might sometimes uh, be necessary. So have you have to sort of have you thought about it from that perspective? Um, yeah, so I think that's fair, although I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. Like another uh, very recent trend in modern science is these papers with hundreds or th- or even thousands of authors. So I mean. Some of these projects really do take a lot of uh, manpower. Like one I talk about in the in, in the essay is the uh, the particle collider, which discovered the Higgs boson particle. And the paper which uh, reported this discovery had over five thousand authors, um, which is a lot of people. So if this research funding sort of pushes towards more individual papers or smaller groups. That might be a good thing. I'm not totally sure. Uh, in terms of the kind of nepotism dynamics, just giving the funding to your friends, uh, I think that could happen, but uh, it already happens with our current system as well. Like there's quite a bit of political uh, political dynamics in the way that grants are given. And in the way that scientific prestige currently works, who gets accepted at the journals? If you know the editor of Nature, the chance that you'll that your paper will get in is much higher. If you're, you know, yeah, prestigious scientist at a top school versus one that nobody cares about or it's some international school, even if your research is really good. So I'm not sure that the sort of political social dynamics of this researcher guided funding are much worse than they are in our current system. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what, what what makes you think that they would the lottery system is because you know presumably if you are um, doing it on a competitive basis, you're in theory selecting the best possible grants. What's the you know what's the evidence that a lottery system would be no worse? Um. So, the advantage of the lottery system, yeah, it's not that it's you know, better at selecting, obviously. It's just that it's less wasteful, less wasteful. So, uh, yeah, I talk about in the paper how researchers are like radically uh, changing their uh, desired research programs. They're making it less ambitious. They're sort of conforming it into the prevailing paradigm and they're spending, you know, a quarter, a half of their time on grant applications. So, even if the lottery system is sort of a, a, a worse approximation of who's the most productive researcher, it's still saving that productive researcher a lot of resources so they can still come out ahead on net. Um, but yeah, I think it is true that a, a lottery system is, is like worse at, at picking winners. Okay. So you're, you're not, so, but it's still a, um, it's just the, your, your idea is based on the idea that, the opportunity cost is is just so huge uh, that it's got to be much much worse. Um, 
you know, but but you know, it's it's an open question how how much worse it is, and it might you know there might be some something here. I mean, there's two hundred fifty thousand STEM researchers. How many how many of them are you know realistically going to do breakthrough science? I don't know. Like it might be easy to dismiss hmm, like ninety percent. Maybe there should be some kind of threshold thing. Like okay, you have you know you have like fifty percent that you dismiss, and then fifty percent you say okay, there's something here, and then maybe do a lottery system at the top. 50%. You know, we don't have, I mean, it's important to say we don't have evidence for the current system um, that it's better than a lottery system, right? And so it's a, if the, the, you have the wasteful system, the, if you, that's the thing that has to be uh, justified as better. Um, and we just don't have the evidence. So yeah, I think you're right. I think, <laughs> I think the lottery system does make sense. But you, but you talk about experimentation too as like a government policy. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, this basically, you know, came about as writing about this proposal, having conversations similar to this one. Like there are a lot of things that kind of could go wrong with, you know, something like researcher guided funding. Maybe there's a lot of embezzlement. People just give it to their friends. It ends in a disaster. And, you know, something like this has never been tried. There isn't really good evidence about uh, a radically different form of science funding. So I think the clear answer is that the government should rapidly experiment with many different ways of funding science. Um, so one possible allocation I lay out in the paper is, uh, you know, take the 120 billion yearly budget and uh, take a hundred billion and split it between 10, uh, you know, focused research organizations something like in the style of DARPA or NASA say, we're going to give this organization $10 billion, go try and solve this problem. Try to build a salt, try to build a flying car, try to make fusion energy, try to build a space elevator, something ambitious and cool. Uh, then you can take uh, another $10 billion and create, uh, you know, a hundred, $100 million X prizes you know, a big prize for carbon capture, a big prize for efficient solar energy. Uh, still, we have $5 billion left over, and we can fund thousands of MacArthur-style genius grants, give a million dollars to people who are highly productive in their field. Maybe you put it to a vote of their peers, or you have some committee who's going to select special people. And the final $5 billion can be used to fund sort of a meta-study uh, maybe staff some economists in there to see, okay, how can we measure which of these strategies is producing good outcomes? Uh, when should we give up on a strategy and start trying a new one? And just do that for, for a decade or two until we actually find out which system is the best. Yeah. I mean, is there any evidence that government ever works like this? I mean, are there examples of government doing experiments, seeing what works, and then going with a thing that works? Yeah, somehow there are not, right? Like, and th this this should be extremely confusing to even, you know, like, I mean, it, it, I, I think it is sort of intuitive to libertarians who spend a lot of time thinking about government failures. They say, oh, of course, like, of course, the government doesn't really care about what's true. But I think people anywhere on the political spectrum should be really confused about why governments don't spend more time experimenting and just trying to figure out what the right policy is. Like 
they could run some randomized control trials. Like people talk about states as the laboratories of democracy. I think maybe James Madison said that, but they've almost never been used that way. But why not? Why, like, why don't we, you know, uh, David Card and Alan Kruger got so much mileage out of some small differences in minimum wage policy between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Why don't we take that and, and, and start running some actual AB experiments? We can get some real data and figure out what the best yeah. strategy is. But you know, you know why. I mean, you, you know the real reason why governments don't do this. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> they don't. They don't. Can they? The, yeah, the incentives. The incentives do not line up. Yeah, I think there's. Yeah, I think there's. You know. Uh, you know, there has to be a way to take this stuff more. To, you know, take the sort of the political difficulties more seriously and think about sort of the times when the political difficulties have, have been overcome and sort of what that what that takes. Um, the Chinese system apparently has some kind of experimentation. You might you might want to uh, read about that. Um, they apparently do things at the regional level. The regions in China are sometimes very very huge, or they have a a, a kind of a tournament thing where the basically they have a goal, and then the different regions uh, can experiment in their own uh, in their own way. Who you know how fair it is or not? I mean, there's been some papers written about you know the system could be corrupted and stuff, but there's at least an effort um, to try to to try to do something like this. Um, yeah. So, you know, is, is, do we spend, what about the, do you, do you have a sense of how much we spend on, you know, the, I guess we go, going back to the original point that science is a, um, is a public good. Um, and, you know, we, uh, you know, it should have government funding, you know, how, how, how sure are we of that? Because it's, you know, it's like, Government's going to waste a lot of money. Government is not necessarily going to be very good at this. So maybe in theory there could be something, you know, there's, there's something, there's something to that. But you know, if just like you know, I don't know, you could imagine like a mandate of like, you know, you could imagine just taking money from somewhere and giving it to like the best corporations and say, spend it on science that will make you money. And like by accident, you know, or by indirectly, you can get, you can get maybe. Um, you know, something that benefits humanity at large. I mean, even in the private sector, I mean, the things that are invented in the private sector, you know, it's not like the, you know, uh, what's the guy's name who, uh, the fertilizer guy, the, 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 the guy uh, who Norman saved all. Borlaug. Yes. Okay. So like he did not, he, I don't know how rich he got, but he did not get rich enough to compensate himself, himself. Right. So m maybe it's just the, you know, the answer is just let the market do it. And then, you know, you, we'll, we'll, we'll get the benefits of it. Just push science forward. You don't have to sort of, think about ahead of time what's going to benefit most of humanity. Yeah. So I think that's fair. Like it just kind of depends on, okay, are you going to model the government as a rational welfare maximizing agent, or are you going to model the government in a slightly more realistic way and consider the incentives of the, of the people involved? Um, so actually in sort of the original draft of this essay, which was much too long, I had a section about, well, what would a totally unsupported market do with science? So like, you know, comparing it to an ideal world where the social benefits are fully internalized, we're confident that the market would produce less science than optimal, but that doesn't mean it's not the best we can do. It doesn't mean that it's not better than any feasible government system. And if I'm right that, you know, the best way to, 
uh, get good government funding of science is for the government to rapidly experiment with many different ways to do it, then it seems likely that, in fact, an unregulated market system is the best we can do because at least the path towards an unregulated market system is clear. I don't, I've never heard anybody ha- have a concrete plan of, yeah, how, how are we going to lead the government into actually running a bunch of experiments and trying to recursively improve itself? Yeah, especially since it's a long-term sort of goal. I, I, well, sometimes things, you know, talking to people who work in government, often the fact, you know, if it's, if it's done within the agencies, like it can be, you can take more of a long-term perspective, but, you know, the incentives often don't line, don't line up um, even there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, yeah. I, I think that that's, that's a good point. Like the government doesn't internalize temporal externalities very well. Like, you know, a president is only in office for four or eight years, but technologies often have impacts over decades and centuries. So even a, you know, well-meaning or well-run democratic government in some way is going to struggle to internalize these temporal externalities, which might be the most important source of kind of like underproduction when we're talking about the impact of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you have an opinion, do you have an, you know, so the 120 billion, half of it goes to the uh, military, you know, the military budget is something like 800 uh, billion now. Um, so we're not really spending all that much money on science just compared to the military alone. And then you take in all the other things uh, the government does. What are administration costs, by the way? You say we spend $120 billion. How much of that is just like hiring the grant reviewers and processing the applications and all that stuff? That's a good question. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I know the NIH does have thousands of employees who are you yeah, know, but there's your other there's your other problem too. They need jobs, right? Yeah. So this is an this is an interest group that is not going to want to be, uh, you know, fired basically um, because they'll have nothing to do. So you, you don't need them for a lot. How could you fire them? Don't you believe in the science? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You're you're cutting science. They'll say you're cutting science funding because the X, you know, you you cut X the number of people working in science from the federal government. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Yeah, there's there's political difficulties here. I think the I think the you know you're, I think you're embedded in sort of the progress community and these people who have smart ideas. Um, but I think there's a uh, I think there's a, you know I think a lot often they're not thinking too much about politics. Have you um, have you talked to Alex Stapp or the Institute for Progress? They're they're at least trying. You know, the progress studies people are at least trying to to uh, you know think carefully about politics and how to influence policy. Yeah, I I, I have talked to them. They're a great group. Lots of uh, really cool writers and thinkers there. I'm, I'm very glad they're doing what they're doing. Um, I guess I'm not that for like, I don't know how impactful the, the average think tank is. If I had to guess, I would guess like not very, but maybe that's a, not uh, the average, but not the average think tank, but the most important, I mean, the heritage foundation basically appoints uh, everybody when a Republican is in office. Um, and so you can, you can have, you know, it's like the average think tank is not so much, but the think tanks have so much influence. Brookings institution appoints a lot of the, uh, democratic. So the, you know, I don't know about the average think tank is probably more, much more influential than the average university or the average talk show host. I mean, it's still probably pretty important. Um, yeah, actually, you know, I do think the think tank route, if, if somebody wants direct path to influence is probably better than most things. That's cool. Yeah. 
I, I, I like think tanks. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an option. So, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the future, so is this, um, you know, if you do go down the, uh, academic path is, is sort of science and progress and sort of related areas. Is this, you think what you'd be studying? Um, yeah, right now I, it's definitely my biggest interest. I think I like it so much because it combines, uh, you know, this ex- exciting future looking perspective with uh, the economic history, which I also love. So you can, you know, use the looking at the past and relating to the present to analogize to how the future might be in relation to our current spot and thinking about the causes of the industrial revolution. How can we replicate that to move forward? I I, I really enjoy that. So I like this field. And again, it, it, it's a field where it's so interdisciplinary. There's so much to learn that it's not, yeah, like narrowly defined as many academic fields are. Yeah, great. Well, Max, you know, thanks for entering the contest. Uh, it was great talking to you. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be continuing to watch you as you progress and pro- grow and progress. <laughs> great <laughs> having you on. Thanks so much. today with uh, Brent Scorup. Brent, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, glad to have you. So um, uh, Brent is um, third place in our uh, CSPA uh, essay contest on policy reform. For progress, his essay is called Drone Airspace, a new global asset class. Uh, Brent, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, um, You know where you came from, and I guess how you got interested in uh, the regulation of airspace? Sure. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I've been been here eight or nine years doing uh, tech telecom and increasingly drone policy. And you, you see this, I'm not, it's not entirely clear to me why, but you see a lot of telecom lawyers moving into the drone space. And I think, I think there is some overlap, um, but I, I'm part of that movement. Uh, my research in, in the last several years um, has, has been increasingly about drone policy and, and airspace policy and airspace markets. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you be, so the, the telecom uh, drone airspace connection, that's interesting. I didn't know about that, but there is a, there's a parallel here that, that makes sense. So, I mean, I, I thought the, um, I think, you know, I liked your essay because it's, uh, it reminded me of university of Chicago law school um, where everything was centered around law and economics and the idea just sort of inherently spoke to me. So, can you uh, can you talk about what your idea is and how we're going to make you know uh, 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 basically t- regulation make drones work better for everyone? Yeah, I see. I see airspace. Uh, I would say much like people viewed spectrum you know, decades ago. Uh, it's or 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 say um, oil fields 150 years ago. We now have the technology to use to exploit this resource uh, resource and um if you believe like me uh drone technologies are, are going to advance quickly that there's uh with electrification um you know the, the substance on free transportation and services that, that this is a, a large and growing market uh in the future then you're going to see congestion in airspace and competition uh, particularly in urban areas for for airspace, uh, 
Um, and so, yeah, I take a lot of, I, I've done a lot of spectrum policy in the past and, and obviously to you and many others, we'll see that kind of, uh, imprint on, on my work on drone airspace. I, I think the analogs are, are very similar. It's, it's this intangible, uh, resource dominated by a, a federal agency that, that allocates it as, as it wishes. Um, and airspace, low altitude airspace for, for decades has been allocated by, by the FAA and its predecessors to, to companies, uh, for free. Um, and, and there's, there's been arguments for years about, you know, how, how, how you should price airspace. I, I don't see it happening in commercial aviation, but with drones at low altitude airspace, certainly we, we have this blank slate that we can apply, uh, these, these older models, um, like auctions, like leasing and so forth. I, I should add, actually, we did have airspace leasing for airmail in the 1920s. For years, uh, the federal government auctioned airmail contracts to companies and these startup companies would bid on airmail routes. And, and that's how airmail got started until the federal government, uh, really a single postmaster general nationalized it and, and took it over. But um, uh, that's, um, so anyways, I, I want to I avoid that problem. The problems we saw in spectrum policy and in aviation policy, um, and and uh, consider a new regime for this blank slate of low altitude airspace and drone airspace. Yeah. So right now, you said they uh, they just give it to company. They do they sell them to company. How do they decide who gets who gets what? And so like airspace uh, is like okay. So you want from my house to somebody else's house, and then it's a, a certain altitude. It's like just uh, it's like it's like property, but it's in it's in three dimensions, right? So you could have airspace, you could have airspace, like you could have one on top of the other, right? You could have something this high and this something this high. People on the podcast can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but basically it's just three dimensions. You're, you're carving it up in a certain way, right? Um, and how do they, and how do they give that, they give that space out now? Exactly. Uh, so right now the, the, the rules on drone operations are, are very strict in the U S I mean, they're, they're trying to liberalize them. Um, and in time they will, but the rules right now, uh, like generally speaking, you cannot fly beyond the line of sight of the operator. Um, oh, really? Uh, and so, and so that just really limits, you can't fly over people. You can't, you can't fly at, at night. I mean, generally speaking. So if Amazon um, has a drone, they want to deliver you stuff. You just can't do that because nobody's watching it. Uh, they can do it if, I mean, and, and there are companies testing and sometimes they get waivers from the FAA to do, to do things. You can't run a business on, on a waiver though. Um, so in short, you know, I know, I know Walmart, Amazon, a few other companies are, are testing it. Often they'll, they'll have people on a platform or they'll have someone, you know, a few miles away, as long as it's in visual sight of somebody. And, and the, the concern is really, you know, avoiding helicopters or, you know, other unforeseen, uh, airspace users. But, um, uh, it, it's still at an early stage, but the, the day will come when, when the FAA liberalizes its rules, when companies, uh, can, can manage multiple drones with a, a single person. There, there's a company, U.S.-based company called Zipline. Um, they're they're very active in parts of Africa, Rwanda, Ghana, and apparently they're operating one one person can monitor twenty four drones. They they fly in automated corridors, um, and so at the, at that point, it becomes a service. I mean, the technology is is there. Just in the U.S., the 
they're they're moving very cautiously, and there, there's some good and, and not so good reasons for that. So, so. you're saying some African countries that basically drone deliveries are already a, already a thing. Yeah, it's it's routine um, in a lot of areas. The country of Rwanda, this company Zipline, according to news reports, is delivering 75 percent of the hospital blood in the nation of Rwanda. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's really impressive. A doctor pulls up the app, says, "I, I need these medical supplies." And minute, minutes later, 20 minutes later, a drone's flying overhead and parachuting uh, a medical um, supply box onto the hospital campus. Um, and, and they're doing that a dozen, dozen hospitals in Rwanda and in Ghana, they're active. They, they've got a few. Are these, are these uh, like rural got, areas where it's the best, where it's the, like the only option? Yeah, yeah. Rural hospital. And Rwanda is, is a middle-income country. Um, the rural areas are... Yeah, don't have much infrastructure. It makes a lot of sense there. Um, and, and also, I mean, the reason they can do that, the U.S. is unique in that we have over 15,000 uh, airports. Many of these are small municipal and county airports. Um, and it, it, it almost matches every other con- country combined for the number of airports we have. We just have a, a pretty unique and complex airspace system. So they're, they're more cautious here. Although I, I think, yeah, I, I think you will see uh, more drone delivery uh, commercial programs in, in the next few years. Mm, that's interesting. So explain, so how would it exactly, so how would, how would your system work exactly? I think most people listening to this probably don't know about Ronald Coase or, uh, or the Coase theorem or anything like that. So sort of explain it, to, uh, if you could, from the beginning for people. Yeah, so Ronald Coase was a, a British economist. He... Uh, it won a Nobel Prize, I believe, in the 1990s, um, uh, in part for his work on, on auctions. Uh, he, he popularized the idea of spectrum auctions in, in, uh, in a famous 1959 uh, Law Review piece. Um, and actually, he, popular, uh, he says he got the idea from a, a law student, who, had, who had, uh, Leo uh, uh, Herzl, who was a University of Chicago uh, law student, I believe, when he proposed this idea of, of auctions um, a, as an alternative to the, the existing practice at the time where when when uh, the FCC was deciding who should get access to the spectrum, they, they make the, uh, these very complex regulatory decisions um, about technology, about who it is, about whether they have uh, uh, support of, of uh, you know, political supporters. Um, and, and this was a very costly way of assigning spectrum and, 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 uh, Herzl and, and Coase said, why, why not just auction this it, spectrum is, um, country, uh, companies already, they, they lease, sublease, subdivide the, this asset. Uh, they're treating it as property. Let's, let's, uh, treat it as a property asset like any other. Um, and so. Herzl and Coase were proposing this in the 1950s. I mean, the, the idea was just uh, uh, mocked uh, by by any any expert. Why do you? Why do you, Why did you need? Why did they? You said they were already doing. They were already subleasing, and so they were already. It was, there was. It sounds like there was already a market there. What was? What was the reason? Then you needed the. You needed Coase's idea. Yeah, there there was a, a secondary market. So if if you were a broadcast station, say in Washington D.C., you you would sell your station, but, but bundled with that were your spectrum rights. I mean, so, uh, but, but the initial allocation, uh, and that had to be 
approved by the FCC, of course. I mean, that's still largely how it is today for for stations. But um, but there there were these secondary market. Yeah, essentially, your your station was bundled with your spectrum access, and and you could sell that. But the initial allocation and any new allocation, I mean, this was the issue. You had new technologies like broadcast TV at the time, um, and and the government, the the FCC was just giving away this valuable resource to politically connected uh, companies and people. Um, and, and also, I mean, just deciding what technology to use. Um, it, this was all at the national level and you had, you had huge lobbying fights over, over, you know, which technology to select. And, and Herzl Coast said, this is, this is insane. Uh, this is a spectrum is a commodity uh, it's undifferentiated. You just auction off to the company, let them make the technology uh, selection within the band that they own. Uh, you know, and, and the market will will uh, converge on a solution. Um, and uh, it was it was a brilliant idea. And but it, it just the, the nature of of government didn't get adopted until forty years later, uh, uh, particularly with cellular. Phones in the 1980s, you saw cellular telephony uh, start to gain commercial adoption, but they were still doing this very costly administrative proceedings about who gets spectrum. Uh, they actually went to it. They had so many applications to use this. I mean, cellular in the 80s was this really, really hot technology. Um, they, they, were, they did a lottery. I mean, they, they had, uh, I believe there's a story, uh, the, the FCC had a warehouse that uh, the uh, just full of lottery submissions. I mean, there were these lottery mills to get a filing to uh, to get gain it free access to the, these new spectrum bands for cellular. And, and at that point, economists, the FCC, and, and others were looking for an alternative way, a more fair way to assign this very valuable federal asset, this, this federal property. Um, and and some economists within the FCC started operationalizing this idea of spectrum auctions, which, uh, again, was deeply unpopular uh, for, for decades. But um, uh, with cellular in the 80s, they, they were like, we, we need a new way. We need a fair way of doing this. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, in your, in your essay, uh, the story of cell phones is pretty amazing. The the, the cell phones, I, if I gather, uh, could have been um basically we could have had we could have had uh, regular cell phone use um you know normal cell phone use for mass, the mass public decades earlier uh if if regulations had been different is is that right yeah the first use of a mobile telephone system was in 1946 i mean these were you know large primitive systems at the time in cars but they were mobile telephone systems in cars in, in the 1940s uh but you, you were stuck in this time of FCC allocations and, and also you had the AT&T national monopoly, which is where, uh, 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 which w- was the national phone monopoly. So you, you had, you know, a, a single regulator and a, and a single monopoly deciding how to use this. They, and they clearly did not see the potential for, um, mobile telephony at the time. And so it just sat with AT&T uh, for decades, um, there was no competitive pressure. You had some kind of ancillary services like walkie-talkies and so on, but um, um, but yeah, because you had a single regulator and a single monopolist deciding what to do with this very valuable technology, it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, AT and T didn't didn't uh, you know infamously didn't really see the value of it. Um, 
yeah, McKinsey, they, they consult, they McKinsey consult and predict what, what would the mobile phone uh, subscribership look like 20 years in the future. They did this in the 80s and, and McKinsey estimated only a million subscribers ever. Uh, and, and, and they were way off, um, obviously. And, uh, but it, it, we didn't learn that until we had the system of auctions and liberal rules for spectrum use, which didn't come about until the 1990s. Um, and so, you know, to bring it back to drones, I, I see a similar phenomenon happening where we have a, a single regulator gifting low altitude airspace to selected companies, to, to favorite companies. And I think uh, much like telephony, uh, mobile phones, it will just be stagnation. It'll be politicized. It'll be uh, a few, uh, it'll, it'll just be dominated by insiders um, and politically connected, uh, which, you know, they, they can do good things. I mean, th these are well-resourced companies with, with intelligent people running them, but um, it, it just, it does not match what you can do when you have a, a competitive process for assigning this very valuable resource, whether spectrum or oil fields or wind energy sites. I mean, all these things are auctioned by the federal government or the, yeah. so the oil fields started the same way. They, they, there would be uh oil and then they would just basically give it to somebody or, or that that's what they did. It was just basically some, or some kind of random politically connected. Yeah, process. So I, I think for, for the energy sector, offshore oil sites are, are, it's complicated, but in essence, uh, the offshore oil sites are owned by the federal government and they lease, they lease them to companies and the federal government gets royalty payments from it. So that, that's another model. You know, it could be a, a lease with a royalty payment. Um, was the change on the cell phone, the spectrum, uh, <laughs> uh, the policy, was that, um, did, that just came from internal to the FCC? Was there any pressure from Congress or the, or the presidency or, or anything like that? My my reading of the history and, and talking with, with some of the people who were behind it, it, it was largely internal. Um, it, it was economists uh, uh, within the FCC looking for, again, just a better way. I mean, the, the way they were doing it was just a huge administrative problem uh, and, and deeply unfair. Um, and uh, uh, so as I understand it, it, it was largely internal. Uh, Congress, you know, it, in the early 90s, um, uh, and I believe it was the start of the Clinton administration. I mean, so you, you had kind of free market Democrats, uh, in, in Congress and the presidency. Um, so it was a popular idea. It was a bipartisan idea in, in 1993 when they codified it, um, this idea of spectrum auctions. Um, but, uh, but it, yeah, it sat, literally sat on the shelves as an idea for decades, um, before just, pragmatic concerns uh, forced the FCC to find alternatives. Interesting. So it was a popular idea, but it just seemed like nobody in Congress, you know, cared enough to actually do anything and that it just, it was all just internal in the FCC process. Well, I, I suspect, I mean, I suspect for decades, no one in Congress even knew of the idea. I mean, unless you're deep in the weeds of, of telecom policy. And, and again, even, even the experts at the time, um, uh, there, there's, um, you know, great statement. I think in, I think the FCC had Ronald Cosin as as an expert to talk about the idea, and and one of the commissioners said, you know, outside of some corrupt Latin American dictatorships, you know, they don't see how how any nation would would consider uh, market pricing of this federal asset. I mean, they viewed it as this kind of uh, sacred public property that that only a corrupt dictatorship would would lease off, but. 
um, you know, in time, obviously. And now it's a global phenomenon. I mean, this idea that began with a lawsuit in the 1950s is, is now how almost every nation allocates new and, and existing spectrum allocations. That is a that is a hopeful story for progress. Somebody had a good idea. It worked. They had a proof of concept, and then you know it spread to the world. That that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it took that. it took forty years. It took forty years. So yeah, is that hopeful? Is that uh, a tragedy? I, I don't know. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. And it's also not. It's not like related to sort of uh it seems like not to be you know like we said the impetus for this is not coming from the uh you know from elected leaders it just seems like this is what's specialists in sort of the the policy area um started to be convinced was a good was a good idea uh so with the you know with that sort of proof of concept um uh you know why why can't we get the same for for drones i mean isn't there isn't there a record here that one can point to for uh for which we should be doing going forward so the, this idea of airspace markets, which I, I've written a lot about, you know, leasing auctions, um, it, it's it's seen some traction in, in the past couple of years. I, I didn't, I, I don't think I invented the idea. I've probably written about it more than more than anyone else in the U.S. But um, there, I, I saw a paper in the last year or two from European scholars, also you know, reaching similar conclusions that when, when you have congestion, when you have, you know, say six companies that each want to serve, um, you know, these high value corridors in a downtown area, or if we're talking about passenger drones or, um, you know, doing, you know, downtown DC out to Dulles airport. Um, and, and, and the FAA, I should add is they're encouraging a corridor model for this, but what happens when you have more companies than, than corridors and how do you, how do you allocate it? And, and the federal government's view to date has been basically we'll we'll decide when that point comes, um, and I, I don't regard that as a good answer. Uh, that's you, you just get into politicized um, uh, assignment of this very valuable asset, these corridors, whether it's drones or, or passenger drones. And so, you know, I, I hope we we can have uh, at least some people talking about this market allocation mechanism. And, and, uh, yeah, I should, add, the, the FAA drone advisory council few years ago asked me to brief them on, on this. Uh, you know, there is some, some interest. I mean, anytime you're talking about your government receiving revenue from an unused asset, there, there's, there's some, some are interested in that. Um, so I, I definitely, you know, play that up, but, uh, you know, that's kind of ancillary to the real purpose, which is if you want, if you want companies to, to have a competitive area and to iterate and to test um i I think this is the best way forward as opposed to this kind of centralized uh disposition to insiders uh which i which i fear uh, you know if i were placing a bet that's that's where we're headed but um but i think there's time to avoid that what is the what is the you know the um uh how they when it's not a lottery system? Well, what do they? What do mean? What is insiders? How do they justify it when they want to give it to an insider? Like, what do they say or what do they do? So, generally, first come, first served, uh, with some qualifications. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll let me talk about a little bit of history aviation, just to give an idea. So, in history aviation, I mentioned there, there were the federal government did 
allow bidding to airmail contracts um, in the 1920s. In the late 1920s, some of the companies got, uh, you, they were sick of the competition. They started lobbying Congress to restrict competition. There were dozens of airmail companies. Um, they got they got a bill passed in 1928. That didn't do enough. There were still more than 40 companies. Um, and, and it took uh, uh, President Hoover's postmaster general uh, who who got some legislation passed, but then he went beyond the legislation, got the top three companies together, and they divided all the airmail routes between the, the three companies. Um, so 90% of the market went to three companies by, by unilateral action by a single person. Um, and these were, in his view, uh, Postmaster General uh, Brown, these were the most qualified companies, they had the best technology. I mean, so this is what you know, I, I see would happen. There would be some... Um, determination about who's best positioned but this would be a guess and, and now we're, we're living decades later with the results of that um uh disposition of airmail contracts to three companies this gave way to uh the the big four airlines in, in time um but uh you know it's, it's too late to uh to put the toothpaste back in the tube at some point um yeah so this could I mean, have i mean this could have worked for you think you think if airlines um, had gone with an auction system from the start and not restricted competition, you think the uh, the sort of the flying would be much better than it is today? Yeah, I do. Um, and you know, for anyone, I don't know if you've looked at like the the, the slot framework in the U.S. The federal government, the FAA, allocates slots to high high traffic airports. These are fifteen minute increments of time uh, that companies. Uh, that airliners use to land and take off just to prevent congestion. These are, these are not priced. Um, uh, there have, uh, generally speaking, actually in 2011, the Obama administration, um, uh, took about two dozen slots and, and auctioned them off for $90 million. I mean, these are very valuable assets. Um, so the slot, the slot is, the you, the, you're renting the space and the time for, uh, for landing your plane, yeah, it's it's essentially airspace access at a busy airport. Um, ah, so, so for a fifteen minute uh, time, uh, yeah, I mean it. It's just, just a flavor. The it's, it's a space too, because they, they don't have only one plane landing every fifteen minutes, or do they? Uh, the, the airport. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so it, it it's it's the airport for a given time. So that's time and space. Um, you know, 15 minutes at, at a given airport to do you get to the whole airport? Right. Is there only one per 15 minutes? Is that, that's what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. Okay. Yep. So, uh, so, yeah. okay. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And, and there, there's, I mean, this is an issue across around the world. Um, slot slots are very valuable and just like spectrum in the 1930s, there are these secondary markets, uh, airlines buy and sell and trade and subdivide their slots. I mean, they're very valuable. But they, they were given away uh, decades ago to the major airlines, um, and, and occasionally they, you know, we learn their value when, when you know companies borrow against them and and, and lease them, and other things. It, it's uh, you know, we we know they're valuable. I mean, it, and and I want to avoid that kind of dysfunction with drones um, that we see in traditional airlines. Yeah. So like, so I mean, it, it's like. Um... So we don't know that like one 
uh, one plane per 15 minutes is an ideal way to run an airport, right? Because no matter, because it's like you, the price system would factor in everything, which is the convenience, the convenience, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the safety, the, um, the size of the airport. So it seems like you can have like many different systems. You can have like, you know, you can have, uh, uh, you could have a lot of things. Is this why like, uh, you're often just sitting there waiting forever to take off? Is that, is that, is that related to that? It's definitely all tied together. I mean, the thing about our air airport system, um, and it, it's it's related to what I talked about earlier about this kind of nationalization of all air routes. But we also have a, a policy of at least for major airports. These these are basically um, they serve multiple companies, it, and that creates all kinds of competitive issues because Southwest wants to. Fly, of course, at all hours of the day, and United, and and, and Spirit, and all, all the rest. So they're they're all competing for the same resource of airspace, of airspace access, and airport access. It didn't have to be that way. You you could imagine a, a system of private airports, uh, you know, serving a single company, and and you avoid a lot a lot of these all these issues. Uh, and and that's that's the way I, I see the drone industry going. Um, I don't think you'll see this kind of forced access, this kind of forced sharing of facilities among drone companies. I mean, for, for I mean, because there, there'll be drone companies doing different services. It'll be retail delivery. There'll be inspections, um, and so I think you you will see a, a different um, infrastructure. Uh, Have any countries gotten gotten air travel right? Have any countries uh, done something like an auction system and then you know had good or bad results with that no all companies all countries have adopted this kind of shared access regime uh and and just decades ago gave you know it had this first come first serve basis where the 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 first companies that were there have have the very valuable um slots and it's very hard to uh pull that away once you know once they've built a business around that um I, w- I will say that the U.S. is unique, in, in, not in a good way, in that most other countries have uh, privatized air traffic control, uh, much more uh, private air traffic control. There's, there's various reasons for why the that why the U.S. hasn't done that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, most most of Europe has privatized air traffic control. Uh, um, uh, the Arab countries, Australia, and. Uh, it, it just never took. Uh, so yeah, there are better models out there than, than what the U S has. Uh, but w- they're, they're still a, f- a far way away from, uh, the vision I envision, uh, which is private infrastructure and private corridors. Um, but I would, with drones, again, we have this blank slate to, to get it right this time. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, talk a little bit about, you know, where do you think the technology is going in the near future? You mentioned, uh, shuttles from, uh, from Reagan to, uh, downtown DC, you know, how far off would say something like that be? Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to say because this, you know, what, what's now being called the advanced aviation sector. I mean, that, that includes everything from piloted electric aircraft, which I think could, I mean, could happen in the next five years uh you know passenger piloted electric aircraft um all the way to you know autonomous passenger drones i mean that's probably a you know at least a decade away although yeah. although um 
you know, I, I think you'll probably see pilot programs the next five years for those, um, all the way to small drone deliveries, which there, there are, I used to keep track of all the, of the drone delivery pilot programs in the U S I just can't anymore. There's just dozens, perhaps hundreds throughout the U S but I want to emphasize none of these are commercial. I mean, these are, you just can't have a commercial service with, with the current rules they're, they're under, which again, can't fly at night. You have to have a single operator for every drone. So what, what are uh, they doing? Just uh, what, what, what if they're not commercial programs? Um, I, I think proof concept, they're testing their technology, testing their drones, testing their drone traffic control systems. Um, uh, yeah, I've seen some of the costs, you know, for some of these companies, I mean, they're, you've got to pay for like a hundred dollar per hour engineer and, and, and drone traffic managers, uh, to, you know, deliver like coffee cups and, and diapers. I mean, you just can't have profitable service doing that. I, I think, I think for small drones, I, I think uh, the first business opportunities will be largely in rural areas, uh, medical deliveries, uh, you know, kind of like the Rwanda example, but, um, uh, but hospital deliveries in, in, in rural areas, business to business, uh, perhaps car parts, um, that sort of thing. I, you know, it's gotta be, you know, somewhat lightweight, but high value, uh, things. Um, there's, there's inspections, drone inspections. I, I think, well, you're seeing a lot of it. Um, saw Korean, Korean airlines, they, with with four drones, they could do in four hours what it took ten hours for people to do this inspection of aircraft, um, crop spraying again. You know, crop spraying with an aerial with a plane costs like five hundred thousand dollars. You could do it with a ten thousand dollar drone for for much cheaper. So there, there's a lot of these things out there. I mean, yeah, I don't know. You know, which of these will will prove to have a market? Um, you know, we see some of this in other nations. Um, but until we have, until the FAA allows routine drone flights, you really can't have business. But we will get there, and and I want my idea for airspace markets to, um, to be ready and to be operationalized when we do get to the point where you've got again multiple companies that want to do say parcel delivery in a downtown area. How how do you decide who gains access to the airspace? So are you, so are you optimistic? You sound like you think this. You think the pub are going to get the policy right, or, or or do you do you think we will? Yeah, I I uh, again it it depends how you view the Herzl story. You know, this forty years from idea to a global phenomenon. Uh, I'm optimistic that I can do better in forty years. Uh, that you know this idea of airspace markets can be adopted faster in 40 years will it will it take 10 will it take 20 i i don't know um yeah i think we will well, get there because like, well, it could be like airplanes too right where that, that we never it just we got stuck in a not very good system yeah 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 it could it could um but uh i i've seen enough interest in in other you know other nations talking about the idea that i think I think this could have legs, but interesting. So you think you think somebody else will? Somebody else will do it if we don't, and then they'll sort of prove how great it is. Yeah, I, I think that's totally possible. Um, Wait, which I countries? Mean, which countries? Do, as as far as you know, are are looking most at this? Yeah, I, I've seen, uh, I've seen the European regulators talk about this idea of airspace markets. It's possible they they have much more familiarity with 
privatized air traffic management. I think they're much more comfortable than uh, than many of the U.S. Frankly, uh, with with this idea of, of a more private aviation system. Um, but uh, it, it could be a Latin American country. Uh, yeah, I, I really really don't know. Um, but I hope I hope the U.S. will will lead on this. I mean, everyone does look at the U.S. for aviation policy, and um, you know what what happens here uh, is is very influential. Yeah, America matters matters a lot. I mean, if you observe sort of what the rest of the world does, you I think you will learn that very quickly. Uh, okay, well, I mean, great talking to you, Brent. Uh, do you have you know anywhere where people can find you? Do you have a a Twitter, a blog you'd like to promote any, anything before I let you go. Yeah. My, my, my Twitter handle is, uh, you can find me at B score up uh, a lot of drone and technology talk. Um, uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus center. You can, you can see my latest research about drones and spectrum and, and telecom, uh, there. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And we'll post links to all that. All right, Brett. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks Richard. Mm-hmm.